1: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Box of Oddities is now a Castbox original. Castbox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to the Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give Castbox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with Castbox. We think it's the best.
1: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences.
0: Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected... As they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box
2: of oddities. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, Freaks have given us some great suggestions for books to use for um, resources for the podcast and
1: just for funsies
2: and just for funsies. And now we're getting suggestions for movies and TV shows,
1: which I always encourage. And uh, I'll tell you what I've been really enjoying uh, is Castle Rock. Yes.
2: Yeah, somebody had recommended that to us and uh, because it has a, you know, clearly a Stephen King connection, they thought, Hey, you guys probably like it. Well, you're right.
1: And uh, we're only a few episodes in, but really digging it. I had been putting it off because I was a little nervous about it, but, um, but I've been really enjoying it. Picking up on the little Easter eggs has been a lot of fun. The the many references to various Stephen King works. I've been enjoying that. We have
2: to make a pledge, though, that we will actually finish this series. Because Ooh. we start things mm. and we get well into it. And yeah. then something else, something else shiny uh, distracts us. Ooh, let's go watch that. And then we never go back.
1: No, that happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah, the only consistent, I would say, is Jeopardy. Which, by the way, have you seen Alex Trebek's beard? It is coming in so nicely. Thumbs up, Alex Trebek.
2: Is this a new thing for him? Yeah. Bearded Alex?
1: Did you... I mean...
2: No. I don't know. I don't watch it every night like you do.
1: It's nice. In fact, there was a poll... I think they did it on the uh, Jeopardy! Facebook page the other day. Do you like bearded Alex or not bearded Alex? And my my preference is current Alex. So whatever he's doing, whatever he's feeling compelled to uh, express himself by means of, I support. I love you, Alex Trebek.
2: Is it Alex Trebek specifically or just any bearded Canadian?
1: Well, obviously it's just Alex Trebek. He can do no wrong. So we gotta get uh get to doing this so I can watch tonight's episode. Let's go. You go first, right? Yeah? <laughs> I do go okay. first. All right. Let's go.
2: It started with me waking up to the sound of a deep throated chuckle. And then I looked at my bedroom door and a man stepped through in a mask as red as blood. The mask itself was demonic in nature, with big underfangs like a boar's. With unnatural, outlandish twists and turns in his cheeks and a deep-set, wrinkled brow, he had violet, serpentine eyes bulging out of his head. They looked like they were about ready to pop out. He was wearing a rich-colored brown robe with a hood pulled up, covering the rest of his head, drawing all the attention to the mask and those dreadful eyes. Mm. He pulled a squirming burlap sack behind him.
1: Yeah, until you got to the robe part, I thought you were talking about when... Bandit woke me up by throwing up on my leg the other day.
2: (laughs) No, no, no. I'm going to discuss sleep paralysis.
1: Ooh, terrifying. Excellent.
2: Sleep paralysis. According to Wikipedia is when, during awakening or falling asleep, a person is aware but unable to move or speak. During an episode, one may hallucinate. They might hear or feel or see things that are not there. And of course, it often results in fear. How could it not?
1: Right. Obviously. Terrifying. Horrible.
2: Episodes generally last less than a couple of minutes, but uh, it may occur as a single episode or be recurrent. The condition may occur in those who are otherwise healthy. But those with narcolepsy are particularly subject to it, or it may run in families as a result of specific genetic changes.
1: Now, paralysis while you sleep is completely normal, right? Right, right, Right. right. Okay.
2: Like if you see a a dog and the dog is dreaming about running and he's running and twitching and Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it keeps us from acting out what we're doing in our dreams. right.
1: But this is just kind of like a a lapse in the connection that says, okay, you're awake now, so this paralysis should stop.
2: What happens is you sort of kind of become aware, conscious again, but you can't move. It feels like somebody's sitting on your chest in many cases. But in addition to that, these horrific hallucinations. The central symptom of sleep paralysis is being unable to move during awakening. You can imagine sounds such as humming or hissing or static or zapping. Intense emotions, fear and panic are are quite normal. Numbness, feelings of electric tingles and vibrations. But the overwhelming thing is the inability to move, that you're trapped in your body, and then these waking dreams or hallucinations will start to manifest.
1: And I imagine that it kind of plays off itself. So you can't move, and so you're fearful, but then you're having these hallucinations. Why can I never say that word right? And then... Um, Because you want to move so badly, because you're terrified, You're not being able to move makes you even more scared. And I I bet it's like a vicious cycle. It, it,
2: it certainly would be, yes. Now, the stories that I'm about to share with you come from Redditors, and uh, they were collected by Ranker. The story that I just started telling you, let's pick up where we left off. He pulled behind him a squirming burlap bag, and he stopped when he got to the foot of my bed. He stared at me for a long moment and then reached in the bag. One by one, he pulled everyone I had ever loved loved, cared about, or considered as a friend out, and positioned them so I was looking directly into their eyes. He took his hand, which was a gnarled, bony thing with skin drawn so tight it looked as if it had none at all, and drew his long, sharp nail across their throats, spilling torrents of blood at my feet. I had to watch the life drain out of the eyes of everyone I ever truly loved and had known. And deep in those eyes, I could see terror mixed with pity in each and every one of them. And only after the bag was empty did he let it drop, and he began walking around my bed. I couldn't move. He stopped as he towered over me, leaned down, he reached to me, gently stroked my face with his bloody stained nail. With his other hand, he reached and pulled off his mask. I could not honestly put into words what I saw beneath the mask. It was... Krampus. Well, it was an ever-changing face of horror. Yes, I guess it could have been Krampus. That's kind of what I'm picturing in my head.
1: That's exactly what I'm picturing. His
2: face twisted and squirmed and never remained still for long, and each facial uh, reconstruction was more terrifying than the last. As I looked into his violet, serpentine eyes, he spoke to me. I still remember the words well enough to quote them verbatim, but... As they were profoundly disturbing and personal in nature, I do not wish to repeat them to anyone. But the last thing he said was, quote, enjoy the time you have left, because soon your life will be mine and your soul as well. As he said this, his face settled into a single form. It was my face. That's freaky. Freaky. What does that say exactly? You're you're big into dream analysis. What does that say? Does he fear himself?
1: Well, I think dreams and night terrors probably, I mean, I guess it's not really a night terror. Maybe it's a night terror. Is it a night terror? Yeah, it'd be a night terror. Uh, I don't know if they they work the same as far as your subconscious goes, but I would imagine being so influenced by fear and um, panic that it's not the same Mm -hmm. as just a regular dream. And so I wouldn't
2: dare interpret that. It just, it seems like it would be fraught with meaning.
1: Sure, I mean, I guess it is.
2: Here's another case. Quote, this happened when I was six, 20 years ago. I I still remember it vividly because I haven't gone more than a couple of months without playing it back in my head. I remember waking up from a creepy dream and lying in bed for a minute. Then my mom opened the door and I could see her silhouette. Was she there to comfort me, possibly? She didn't say anything. She then eerily waddled or hobbled into my room and started looking a little more creepy. She looked a little like a a creature from Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, Okay, I could only see the dark outline of her body and her head, but her hair appeared messy and her head looked larger than normal. I was on the top bunk. My baby sister was on the uh, bunk below. My mom stood at my bed. Her head was about level with my own. She stood there for a minute at the side of my bunk bed, and I could just begin to sense things were weird. She then reached out and started tickling me a little. I wasn't freaked out quite yet. Then I began to feel uncomfortable, but the tickling intensified. She began grunting quietly, almost as if she was murmuring something. Finally, I was trying to tell her to stop, but of course words were impossible to form. The tickling intensified until she was scratching and jabbing and digging at my torso. By then, the grunting had eventually grown into a deep growling and howling. I couldn't move or make any noise. Why wouldn't my little sister wake up and help me? It's the scariest thing that ever happened to me.
1: Yeah, that's horrible. No resolution to that then, huh?
2: No. Oh, good. No, no.
1: Okay.
2: I bet that made for some lively conversation around the breakfast table the next morning. So, Mom, um, about the whole... You know, ripping pieces of my torso out Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night Mm and in in the hobbling, the nocturnal hobbling. Could you stop that, please?
1: And that's the scariest because as a kid, you know, your mom's supposed to be the one protecting you. And if it's a weird version of your mom, which is, well, terrifying.
2: Yeah. And you're six years old. That's the worst. I would think.
1: But then again, you've got bunk beds, so that's pretty
2: cool. And he got the top bunk, so shut your mouth. You got it pretty good. This is another terrifying story. I suffered a terrible accident involving being kicked in the face by a horse, and uh, that resulted in my jaw being broken, two plates and a wire jaw. Later, I was pretty angry and exhausted. I'd suffered from uh, sleep paralysis before, but nothing to the extent after this accident. It occurred every night, sometimes multiple times for months on end. We have a mirrored wardrobe next to our bed my side, of course, and I sleep with the bedroom door open. Quite often, I would just be falling off to sleep. When I could feel the dread wash over me, followed by the feeling of something being in the room, I would then feel like something was pulling me off the bed by the arm, toward the mirror, trying to drag me through the mirror. Then the nightmares progressed to being dragged off the bed by my back, all while feeling choked and unable to scream or move, unable to get my husband's attention, who lay next to me, extremely unnerving and upsetting, to the point that I would fear sleep. My husband told me that I'd would uh, been sleepwalking because after I had dreamed I'd been pulled out of my bed, he would wake up and find me in the hallway. That's got to be freaky. He assumed she was sleepwalking, but mm-hmm. from her perspective, she'd been dragged off the bed.
1: Sure. That must be a great feeling of helplessness is being the spouse of someone who is going through this because you want you know to comfort them and care for them and see that they're not in terror all the time (laughs) and and there's really nothing you can do about it because you have to sleep or is there something you can do about it do you have some sort of solution
2: well they they do have some some medications excellent that have shown promise and and Ah, do help
1: prescription meds i love you (laughs)
2: Oftentimes this uh, is a result of sleep deprivation too Or just uh, sleep apnea So oftentimes it's a very common cause For something like this to happen But Mm. wow, I've never had anything as I've had some weird things in my life happen But I've never had anything as dramatic and horrifying as you know, a succubus in my room at mm-hmm. night sitting on my chest.
1: Right, yeah. That's a whole nother level. And it's funny how those kinds of things will stay with you. Like um that person had referenced that they don't go very long without thinking of that specific event or dream and yeah. and it playing over again in their heads. And I have three dreams from my childhood and I don't remember much of my childhood, but I do remember having these very specific dreams. And it's strange how those... Things can stay with you when other things, you know, like what I had for breakfast.
2: <laughs> yeah. Tell me one of your, one of the dreams you remember from when you were a kid.
1: Oh, uh, well, there was one where my brother, who had been in a pretty horrific accident years before, was and had become um, brain damaged because of that accident. My that brother, wasn't in your dream. No, that really happened. That really yeah. happened. Um, but my brother came into my room and he was the same age that he was in in my waking life, but was well and hadn't been in an accident. And um, I was kind of excited about that. I was uh, very happy that my brother was well, uh, but he had a trash bag with him. And, um, it didn't occur to me to think anything of the trash bag until he started walking toward me. And all of a sudden I knew, oh my gosh, he's going to put me in that trash bag. And I knew that I was going to be inside the trash bag and being dragged because, and it was funny because my brain knew, well, he couldn't lift me. Um, So (laughs) I would be dragged and I felt myself encased in the trash bag being dragged along the ground. that was very upsetting.
2: But this wasn't a waking dream. I mean, you didn't have the sense at the time that uh, it was real, or, or did you, on some level, know it was a dream, or...
1: No, when he came into my room... I had no idea I was dreaming. It wasn't Mm. until I was in the trash bag that I realized, how did I get in this trash bag? This doesn't make any sense. I don't remember fighting not to be in this trash bag. And I knew I would have. And it was funny the way I realized that this couldn't Uh. be reality because I was too much of a dick. And I would have been like, (laughs) no, I'm not getting in your trash bag.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
2: screw you, succubus, impersonating my brother. There was another story that I came across a while ago. Uh, it was another example of being dragged oh. out of out of bed. And uh, she was lying in bed and she woke up and there was just something really, really big and heavy sitting on her chest. Mm-hmm. And it slowly crawled off and grabbed her leg and was pulling her and pulling her and pulling her and trying to get her off the bed. And... She started uh, praying to God for help. And when she did, she woke up. But it wasn't like she woke up and everything was different. She was just, whatever was dragging her just disappeared and then she could move. It was like seamless.
1: Oh, that's upsetting.
2: <laughs> and she was half off the bed. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that would follow me the rest of my life, I think, <laughs> if, if that had happened. One more. It happened once in my sister's room. I was lying on my back and noticed a dark, bony figure jumping from wall to wall, scurrying up across the ceiling. Alone, it wasn't the most terrifying experience. I've had sleep paralysis often, so I didn't even bother telling anyone about that one because it wasn't one of the worst experiences that I had. Sure. Next week, I was sitting at the table, and my sister said she had this weird dream recently, and she described the exact same figure in detail. Ooh... I know how you hate things scurrying up the wall and hiding in the corner of ceilings. So you... I saved that one for You thought last. it was important yep. to... Yep. I wanted to end with that one for you. <laughs> You're welcome.
1: Well, that's okay.
2: Yeah. In a previous episode, many episodes ago, I talked about an experience I had in Boston Children's Hospital. I was like six years old. My bed was facing uh, the bathroom door and it was one of those older solid wood doors with a very distinctive wood grain in it. And uh, it looked like the outline of a, of a person. Kind of like a Rorschach test, right? And I had an experience where that figure stepped out of the door and walked over and stood beside my my bed. And I won't go into any more detail other than that. But now I'm starting to wonder if it was if that was what I experienced.
1: That's very possible. Some
2: sort of a sleep paralysis.
1: It makes a lot of sense considering the strain that you were under and mm-hmm. what you were going through at that time.
2: Yeah, and I I was recovering from from a coma. Right. So yeah, could very well have been. I I never thought about that until. I started putting these pieces together for this, uh, this particular episode.
1: And, um, yeah, I mean, it seems to make sense.
2: Hmm. So there you go. Sleep paralysis. That's weird, huh? Hopefully you're not listening to this podcast just as you doze off to sleep tonight. <laughs> if you are, sorry.
1: Yeah, I never want my last waking thought to be succubus.
2: And you might want to cover that mirror in your room, too, so no one drags you into it.
0: Tonight. And now, The Box of Oddities brings you That Thing in the Middle.
2: All right, let's do That Thing in the Middle. That Thing in the Middle, again, comes from uh, the Strange History book, which is a bathroom reader, and it's just the most wonderful thing ever, because I'll be in there, I'll be in the bathroom, doing what you do in the bathroom, or one of, you know, three things that I do in the bathroom, and three, nine, and leafing through the book, and I came across this story, and I thought... Two. This would be a good one for uh, that thing in the middle. It's called Titan vs. Titanic. In
1: 1898, Morgan Robertson wrote a novel called Futility, or The Wreck of the Titan, about the maiden voyage of an unsinkable luxury liner. Robertson's Titan was 800 feet long, weighed 75,000 tons, had three propellers and 24 lifeboats, and carried rich passengers. Cruising at 25 knots, the Titan's hull was ripped apart when it hit an iceberg in April. Most of the passengers were lost because there weren't enough lifeboats. Fourteen years later, the real-life, unsinkable Titanic took off on its maiden voyage. It was 882.5 feet long weighed 66,000 tons, had three propellers and 22 lifeboats, and carried rich passengers. Late at night, on April 14, 1912, sailing at 23 knots, the Titanic ran into an iceberg that tore a hole in its hull and upended the ship. Over 1,500 people drowned because there weren't enough lifeboats. After the disaster, reporters asked Robertson, an experienced seaman, if he was clairvoyant. No, he replied. I know what I'm writing about. That's all.
0: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
1: My friend Erica posted on Facebook, I walked into the kitchen to sing Despacito at Ben, and he stopped me. I need to concentrate on this. I have to pickle these shallots. What has HelloFresh done to my husband? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my God. I immediately was like, oh my gosh, did you also get the creamiest mushroom ravioli and the sweet potato and black bean tacos? And she was like, yes!
2: Yeah. Uh, we subscribe to HelloFresh and you should too. In fact, a lot of our friends do for many, many reasons, not the least of which you can get into a menu rot pretty easily, especially if you have a busy schedule. We've really been living this podcast for the past six months, and we kind of got into a rut for a while with our food. And then HelloFresh came along and offered us so many great, in our case, vegetarian options. You can get vegetarian options if you want. They have all kinds of different options, but we select the vegetarian options, and it just freshens everything up.
1: There are actually three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family
2: you can get delicious filling meals delivered right to your door every week. It's less than 10 bucks per serving and it's fresh, it's delicious. And I'm guessing you probably wouldn't make something this good on your own unless you're some kind of a trained chef.
1: I don't understand how they can get fresh avocados to my house in the mail when I can't pick them out at the grocery store. <laughs> Blows my mind. But all the ingredients come in pre-measured, handy, labeled meal kits. So you know which ingredients go with which recipe. And you don't buy more than you need.
2: It's just what you need. Nothing more. Nothing goes to waste. And I really like the Global Eats option because you know that we like to travel. And we spend a great deal of time in Ecuador. I love the food there. This gives us options to sample food from around the world, international dishes and flavors right in our house.
1: But if I'm making food that's not from HelloFresh and I say, hey, what do you want tonight? Inevitably, it will be mac and cheese. Speaking of that rut.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a chef myself, although I have mastered the art of boiling hot dogs. Veggie hot dogs. When
1: you boil them, it really brings out the flavor. (laughs) And with it being back to school season, this is an amazing time to bring HelloFresh into your life. Because busy nights of getting the kids to practice and study groups and do you have your saxophone? Oh my God. HelloFresh makes dinner quick and easy with family meals ready in 30 minutes.
2: And right now, HelloFresh has a great deal for Box of Oddity listeners.
1: For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com slash box 60.
2: And then enter the promo code box 60.
1: $60 off, you guys.
2: That's 20 bucks off your first three boxes. HelloFresh.com slash box 60. And then enter promo code box 60. It's like receiving six meals for free.
1: One of the things that we love so much about doing this podcast is getting to see the amazing things you beautiful freaks create. There are so many artistic types, so many like straight up incredible artists trying to make a living doing the things that they love.
2: One of our freaks recently sent us a copy of her uh, comic book that she drew. She actually binged our entire catalog while (laughs) drawing this comic book. So cool. I love the fact that creative types enjoy this podcast. And Now, if you're in business for yourself as a creative type, whether you're an artist or an illustrator or perhaps you're an event planner, anything like that, you know how difficult it can be to organize your business.
1: Especially with that whole left brain, right brain fight kind of thing. Yeah. I'm an artistic type. Does that mean that I love doing paperwork? No. No, it it does not mean that.
2: That's where HoneyBook comes in. HoneyBook is a purpose-built business management platform for the creative small business like yours.
1: They help photographers, designers, event professionals,
2: comic book artists,
1: save hundreds if not thousands of hours a year by adding time-saving automation to their business. Uh, wow, it's a lot of stuff you're keeping track of. How are you doing it? Oh, it's automatic.
2: And that's the best part of it, because as a creative type, you want to spend your time on being creative, not filling out invoices, for example. I hate asking people for money. This way, with HoneyBook, it does it for you.
1: And you still get money. So you don't have to ask for it, but you still get it, because we like to get money.
2: (laughs) Money is good. HoneyBook makes it easy to streamline the client process from, let's say, proposals to contracts, right down to the invoicing.
1: And that's why for a limited time, Box of Oddities listeners can get 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with promo code BOX.
2: You go to honeybook.com and use promo code BOX to get started. Again, honeybook.com promo code box.
1: 50% off your first year. So you get to do all the stuff that you love that you're good at and you don't have to do that other stuff.
0: honeybook.com promo code box. It looked so much bigger in the full color brochure. This is The Box of Oddities. You know, sometimes it's easy to forget that
2: uh, when people listen to The Box of Oddities, they're all listening to different episodes at different stages in the catalog, and we'll get comments from shows that we did, you know, like twenty-five shows ago or something, and you kind of, sort of remember, but, but not. At one point, I I posed the question to you: What celebrity would you want to eat? And uh, Sam Porter uh, chimed in. On social media, if I had to eat a celebrity, I would pick Bruce Campbell. Hands down, I imagine he would taste akin to mid-range whiskey and gunpowder. I
1: think that's the best description of any I could think of. And it's a great choice.
2: I seriously laughed out loud when, Mm. when I read that one.
1: Ah, uh, somebody else had shared uh, regarding our episode about Denver International Airport. Apparently, DIA is under construction, and so somebody sent us a link to a bunch of pictures that they took at the airport. And they've put up um, these signs as they're under construction, and so they say things like "construction" or "cover up." The next one says, "Are we creating the world's greatest airport?" Or prepping for the end of the world. And it has like that blue horse statue guy with like lasers shooting out of his eyes. They're really
2: They're embracing. embracing. The, yeah, the whole conspiracy thing. It's wonderful. I love that. Thumbs up, Denver International Airport. Love it.
1: Coming soon, a secret portal to the underworld. Streamlined security, another misunderstood mural. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, it is your turn, Lady Cakes. What do you got?
1: I want to talk about someone that I really didn't know anything about. I recognized the name, but I didn't know who he was. And then as I started doing some more research, I thought... How did I not know all of this? This is amazing. I have to know more. And so I have about six hours of information to share with you (laughs) about Alexander von Humboldt.
2: Alexander von Humboldt. My interest meters are pegged.
1: Maybe you're familiar with the Humboldt penguin or the Humboldt squid or Humboldt's lily or the Ferramigpeum Humboldtie. Or the...
2: None of those. What does he do? Discover stuff and name it after himself?
1: He's not doing the naming. It's people who are so amazed by him. Uh They have to name things after him because he's incredible. Have you ever heard of Humboldt Glacier? No. Oh, that's in Greenland. What about Pico Humboldt? That's a mountain in Venezuela.
2: It sounds like a delicious Mexican dipping sauce.
1: It really does. Anyway, there are a lot of things named after him. Apparently.
2: So who is this guy?
1: Alexander von Humboldt was born in Berlin in Prussia in September 1769. His father belonged to a prominent Pomeranian family.
2: Was that a thing?
1: I know, right? (laughs) I
2: thought that was a dog breed.
1: Right? <clears throat> Though he wasn't a titled gentry He was a major in the Prussian army And he profited from the contract To lease state lotteries And tobacco sales He was doing pretty well Alexander von Humboldt's mother Maria Elizabeth Kolom, Was the daughter of a Prussian general She was well educated And also the widow of Baron Holweed
2: That sounds like an 18th century insult You Holweed
1: <laughs> So Dad died when Alexander was 10, and mom was pretty emotionally distant, and Alexander became obsessed with stories of adventure, swashbuckling, and exploring things, and he really started to kind of grow this lust for learning and adventure. He originally studied economics in school. He later received some engineering training in Berlin and became Passionately interested in botany. During his schooling, he met George Forster, a naturalist who'd been with Captain James Cook on his second voyage. And Humboldt traveled with Forester in Europe. The two traveled to England. Um, They took Humboldt's first sea voyage together. They went to the Netherlands and France. In England, Humboldt met Sir Joseph Banks, who was the president of the Royal Society, who had also traveled with Captain Cook. And so he's sharing these stories and these ideas with these people who have done these amazing things that he'd always kind of thought about and dreamt about. And then he graduated from the Freiburg School of Mines in 1792. Yeah, there was a school of mines. And he was...
2: like... Not mimes, like with the painted face and walking against no, the wind. like... Because there are schools for that. Oaring. Like or Oh, like digging... Okay, mines. Like, like gold mines. Okay.
1: He was appointed to a Prussian government position in the Department of Mines as an inspector... And he was excellent at his job. The production of gold ore in his first year uh, beat out the previous eight years. And during his time as a mine inspector, he also demonstrated his deep concern for the men laboring in the mines. He paid for schooling for the miners. He paid for, out of his own pocket, um, training so that people could improve their, their status in life. Just because he employed them and he cared about how they were doing.
2: He sounds like a nice feller.
1: He certainly is. He also spent those years studying and serving as an apprentice in the study of botany and geology and published works in the vegetation and animal life within the mines. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to do this mine stuff, but I'm also going to kind of study the stuff that interests me as a person and as a man and publish incredible works on it. Then mom dies. Whew. Finally, (laughs) she was not the best and he wasn't super sad about it, Um, but she did leave him a hefty inheritance. Well, that's good. So he was free and he was going to do what he wanted to do. And I kind of think of it as like, you know the sciences were like his art and he always wanted to do his art but mom was like, no, you're going to work in the mines and you're going to be an engineer. And so he was like, no, I'm going to study birds and flowers. I'm doing it. And so with his own dollars Mm -hmm. armed with the authorization from the king of Spain, Humboldt along with Bonde Plonde uh, whose name is Ami Jacques Alexandre Bonpland, who was a French explorer and botanist, they hopped aboard the ship Pizarro and headed <laughs> to Venezuela.
2: That is the best name for a ship ever, Pizarro.
1: Pizarro.
2: Pizarro.
1: P i z a r r
2: o. Like Pizarro World.
1: That's what it sounds like. Yes, yeah. but maybe that's not how you actually say it.
2: Pizarro. Pizarro. Pia. Pizarro. Pizarro. Oh, anyway, matter.
1: they went to Venezuela. That's where they went, and there was a documentary I was watching about Humboldt, and uh, actually Humboldt in the documentary is played by Christopher Eccleston, who's the um, the Doctor from Doctor Who. The Which first one in the new series. Oh,
0: in the new series. So,
1: okay. um, obviously, I was like, "What?" Yes. <clears throat> so they're in this documentary. They're talking about how, for the first few days that they were in Venezuela, they couldn't even pursue their scientific studies because they were so overwhelmed with the sheer lushness of the landscape. I mean, they're they're from Europe, and they're from France and Germany or Prussia. And then they come into this place where there are palms and there are ivies and there are brightly colored birds and fishes and they're just, their minds are blown, basically. And literally for three days, he said that they would just pick up things to study and then toss it aside, looking at the next thing that was even more amazing to study. But they couldn't study any of the things because there was always something more amazing to study.
2: That's got to be frustrating.
1: Just so overwhelmed with the incredible landscape of it all. So they took about three months in Kumana, and they took atmospheric readings, they tracked temperatures, they explored caves, collected some 1,600 plants, described 600 new species to science. Whoa. They were big. Z. In February 1800, Humboldt and Bonpland left the coast with the purpose of exploring the course of the Orinoco River and its tributaries. They wanted to sail away, sail away, sail away. On the Orinoco flow. Exactly. What up, Anya? Anyway, this trip lasted about four months. They covered 1,725 miles of wild and largely uninhabited country. They had... The result of establishing the existence of a canal which connected the rivers of the Orinoco and the Amazon, um, which was not documented before then, they also documented the life of several native tribes that, mm. as far as Europeans knew, didn't exist. Now, a lot of this is quote-unquote discovery, and you and I have talked Quite a bit about what discovery means to Europeans and to us, and what it actually means to the, the native people, peoples. Yeah, the and, people
2: that we steal their shit. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And sometimes we use the word discovery, and what we mean is thievery. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: Um, so all of this is very exciting, but also to be taken with a, a grain of salt because that time period was a rough time period for. Science and discovery and learning, and because we're all so excited about what we are learning and not considering the impact that it has on those who discovered, quote unquote, it hundreds of years ago because they've always lived there. Anyway, (laughs) so then they go to Cuba and they met a fellow botanist and plant collector. His name is John Fraser. And Humboldt also met a Spanish botanist named Jose Mutas, who was the head of the Royal Botanical Expedition to Granada, and that was in Bogota in 1801. Humboldt actually published his first volume on botany and dedicated it to Mutis as a simple mark of his admiration and acknowledgement of how amazing a botanist this guy was. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed in learning about these guys was how much they appreciated what the other people were doing and learning and exploring. It's almost
2: like a fraternal organization. Yeah. Hey, you you like plants? I like plants. I'm going to name shit after you. <laughs>
1: So Humboldt had hopes of connecting with the French sailing expedition of Baudin, uh, which was now finally underway. So they hurried over to Ecuador, crossed dozens of ridges of of mountains. They reached Quito in January after a tedious and very difficult journey.
2: Quito, Ecuador? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm.
1: And their stay in Ecuador was marked by the ascent of Pichincha and their climb of Chimborazo, where Humboldt and his party reached an altitude of 19,286 feet. And this was a world record at the time. Holy crap. It's just short of the summit of the mountain, but it was a world record. And then Humboldt's journey concluded with an expedition to the sources of the Amazon en route for Lima, Peru. So he is doing South America right. And... You and I, you know, we went to like an airport and we were like, man, we kicked South America's ass. And this guy's like, I'm just going to trek across 17,000 miles of whatever. Anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference between that and uh, a layover at Cinnabon in in the Keto airport. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, So one of the things that made Humboldt so unique was that sciences at that time were a lot about list making. It's all like plants, this plant, this plant, this plant, this plant, neat, and cataloging things. And he wasn't so much about cataloging, though he did a lot of it. Um, he was really interested in seeing how things worked together. So it wasn't about all these plants. It was about the plants and the animals that fed off the plants and the atmospheric uh, pressure that made these plants' growth Ah. possible. And he really, he explored the harmony of all the things that were living and...
2: And and the slight differences that could change the whole structure. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, he he was... That's
2: way ahead of his time.
1: He saw the need to approach science that accounted for the harmony and the the ecosystems that created life rather than just the life and the lists thereof Um, for humboldt the unity of nature meant that it was all of the sciences were important because without one of them the other ones wouldn't succeed and the interrelationship was really what was fascinating for him Between biology, meteorology, and geology, this quantitative methodology would become known as Humboldtian science.
2: That's incredible. It reminds me a little bit of that old TV show called um, Connections.
1: Yeah, you were just talking about that the other day.
2: In in the new TV show, it's out called Origins. Mm -hmm. In Connections, I remember there being an episode where they showed a direct unbroken line lineage between the invention of a weaving loom in today's modern computers, where one thing led to another, to another, and without any of those links, right, it would never have happened. It's
1: kind of like that, but with the natural world yeah. and and how we all rely on each other. And he totally saw humans as being just another part of that natural world. Mm. Excuse me. When they left from Cuba, Humboldt decided to take an unplanned short visit to the States. He knew that Thomas Jefferson, then current U.S. president, was himself a scientist. Mm -hmm. So Humboldt wrote to him saying that he would be in the States. Jefferson was like, yes, come to the White House let's hang. And so they did. Um, In his letter, Humboldt had gained Jefferson's interest by mentioning that he discovered mammoth teeth near the equator and Jefferson had previously written that he believed that mammoths never lived so far south. So Jefferson was um, like, yeah, let's hang out. Let's learn from each other. I'm into this. And while you're here, by the way, I'm having a really hard time figuring out where the border of Louisiana is. (laughs) Um, Anything you can do about that? And Humboldt was like, yeah, I absolutely can. So Humboldt wrote a two page report on exactly that. I mean, Louisiana was new to us. So he was like, yeah, here's where the the borders are. And, and he, I mean, he gave that to us. That's pretty cool. Jefferson later referred to Humboldt as the most scientific man of the age. Humboldt only stayed for about six weeks, and then he headed back to Europe. So between 1799 and 1804, Humboldt traveled extensively in Latin America, as we've discussed. He explored it. He described some of it for the first time to Europeans. um, (sighs) And from a a modern scientific point of view, he was the first one to describe some of these things. His description of the journey was written up and published in an enormous set of volumes over 21 years. Humboldt was one of the first people to propose that the lands bordering the Atlantic Ocean, South America and Africa, were once connected.
2: That blows my mind. Right? Really? He was a fucking genius. Wow. I'm glad his mom died.
1: He resurrected the use of the word cosmos from the ancient Greek and assigned it to his multi-volume works that he called cosmos. Wow. Right?
2: Is that where Sagan, Carl Sagan, got the... Who knows? Uh, wow.
1: Um, but he his goal was to unify the diverse branches of scientific knowledge and culture. He wanted people to work together, not just work in botany, not just work in geology, but to work as, as a whole because that's how he saw nature. Humboldt was a significant contributor to cartography, he submitted major contributions to climatology. His Chimborazo map uh, marked, quote, the beginning of a new era in environmental science. He published three volumes examining sources that dealt with the early voyages to the Americas, pursuing his interest in nautical astronomy. He touched upon so many different areas and was described as his, by his contemporaries as the most famous man in the world after Napoleon.
2: What? in? Wow. And now I feel even stupider for not knowing who he is.
1: Edgar Allan Poe dedicated his last major work to Humboldt No, with very profound respect. It was called Eureka, a prose poem. Humboldt's attempt to unify the sciences in his cosmos was a big inspiration to Poe and his poetry. Darwin cites Humboldt as being, like, the thing. No. Um, he said... I forget what the quote was, but it was something along the lines of, I've always admired him, but I've come to adore him.
2: There was a big scientific bromance going on.
1: For sure. With this dude. The fact that I had heard the name but had no idea of all of this, when I started reading, I couldn't stop. And I do apologize because I I have rambled on quite a bit.
2: It's fascinating. But um,
1: Humboldt suffered a stroke in 1857, and that passed without severe symptoms and it wasn't until the winter of 1858 that his strength began to decline and in 1859 he died peacefully in berlin at the age of 89
2: 89 that's 89 that's almost unheard of at that time it's incredible the average the average lifespan was what 40 45 something like that wow
0: and
1: he had i I attribute his long life to his incredible passion yeah. for learning and life in general, and his being able to explore those passions. I think that if he had continued to remain tamped down by you know mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. of his mom
2: and right. and
1: society and such, then um, then I don't think that would have that we would have had what we had, and and I don't think that he would have lived as long as he did.
2: Well, he had a zest for life, exactly. Clearly, and time and time again. When you read about octogenarians or people that have lived very long lives, over 100, they often say you have to have interest in things. Right.
1: And I feel like we could do a whole other episode on Alexander von (laughs) Humboldt. There's so much to explore, but um, I'm going to end with this. So uh, he died nearly 90 years old, and his last words, which I know how you love last words. I love last words. Were reported to be... How glorious these sunbeams are. They seem to call Earth to the heavens.
2: Oh, that's beautiful. I was just reading an article not long ago where they were speculating that the most common last words uttered are, oh, shit. Really, I'm not making that up.
1: No, I believe that. That
2: would probably... those. <laughs> my, my last words would be more in line with, oh, shit, than the poetic response that right. uh, Mr. Humboldt Yeah, had. I feel
1: like we just yeah. we just took right.
2: the... Right, right into the old oh, shitter.
1: Meow.
2: So he's awesome. You said you saw a documentary on him. I would like to see that.
1: Yeah, I, I it's um, it's on the YouTubes. Just uh, look up Alexander von Humboldt. It okay, is pretty amazing. And just look for uh, Christopher Eccleston, starring as Alexander von Humboldt. It's awesome.
2: Thank you for sharing that. That was great. Now I'm going to have to research to see what the connection is between him and Carl Sagan because clearly there's something there. Right? Yeah. The Box of Oddities is uh, available to you twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. We love hanging out with you.
1: They're actually available to you every day. Thanks, podcasts.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right. This stuff lives out there forever, doesn't it? Yeah. That's terrifying. (sighs) Yep. So, <laughs> so, any whoozle, we'll see you Monday.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly. And
1: enthusiastically.
2: You freaky freak McFreakersons. With
1: passion.
2: Freak stuff. Freak. Do you have to have the last word? No. I don't have to have the last word. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. I think Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box of Copyright 2018, all rights reserved.
1: This family's happy because they eat lard.
0: If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And
2: we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets
1: a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes.